In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is Quinqua Gesima Sunday, uh, which means 50 days until Easter, until the giant peak of the resurrection uh, is reached by us. Between here and there, we have the brooding and difficult and ever-ascending foothills to traverse in the season of Lent. When I was preparing this talk, as you can guess, the theme that kept coming to my mind was the phrase, mountaintop experience. It's a rather loose phrase, but a pregnant one. Jesus and his closest disciples ascend a mountain, Mount Tabor, perhaps about 1,900 feet, but that will pass for a mountain in the Holy Land. I'm from the West Coast. I have opinions about mountains. <laughs> there on the summit, they encounter Elijah and Moses, the law and the prophets personified. Jesus joins the two, Elijah and Moses, in conversation, and in the process, he becomes transformed, transfigured, <laughs> Latin transfigurare gives us the word transfiguration. The Greek is metamorpheo, which means metamorphosis, a transformation, a change of form. And he becomes radiant, whiter than any fuller could make it, as the old text says. And this ethereal conversation that is going on inspires Peter to erect the three shrines. But Jesus bids them descend and they go back down. The last image they have on the mountaintop is of just Jesus alone. Now, our other readings develop these themes of transfiguration, heaven, earth, and mountaintops, as they play into the life of Elijah, who is taken directly into heaven, and Moses, who is not taken into heaven, but is buried on earth with much experience of mountaineering and appropriately buried by God on a mountaintop. So, mountaintop experiences. Now, you won't find mountaintop experience in the OED, but the term connotes a peak moment, a once-in-a-lifetime moment of exhilaration which comes about as a result of transcending or overcoming some kind of deep limitations. It is about breaking limits, breaking through, breaking out, breaking free of something that constrained not just you, but by implication, many others, maybe all of humanity, if your mountaintop experience is significant enough. The text that kept coming to me again and again as I worked through the scripture texts and the other texts for today uh, was uh, a little couplet by Goethe, inscribed on the first page of his libretto uh, for Richard Strauss' monumental opera Die Frau ohne Schatten by the Austrian poet Hugo von Hofmannsthal. That's von Hofmannsthal's libretto. Die Frau ohne Schatten, interestingly, is the Mount Everest of operas, almost insurmountable in its challenges. So the quote is appropriate, and it goes as follows. Von dem Gesetz, das alle Wesen bindet, befreit der Mensch sich, der sich überwindet. From the law that governs all life, man is freed by rising above himself, or 
loosely, man escapes the law that binds all humanity by transcending it. Man escapes the law that binds all existence by transcending it. By dint of superhuman efforts, man makes a heroic ascent from primal muck and ignorance and confusion to the heights of knowledge and insight and clarity. He, we, breaks these limits, these chains that bind us by climbing, by dragging ourselves up hand over hand. This is the implication of the text and certainly of the period in which it was written. Perhaps this is mankind's evolutionary escapade. And the hand over hand is the handing over of tradition, hard-won insights from one generation to another. But the vision is of human progress. Now, if you're finding this somewhat inspiring, or at least a noble pursuit for someone else, if not for you and I, I had better switch topics for fear of seducing you with these Promethean poetics. (laughs) Let's get back to mountaintops. Because this encounter between the disciples and their heroes of faith could have happened anywhere, but it didn't. It happened on a mountaintop. Mountaintops are where humans meet God. Mountaintops are the liminal zone in which we reach the limits of earth and stare into the eternal. Mountaintops are sacred around the world. And the ultimate mountaintop experience today for you and I, if we're going to take this thing literally, climb every mountain, and money is not a major consideration, is Mount Everest. Since Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay's ascent on the Coronation Day, 1953, the better part of 10,000 people have attempted the ascent. About half that have made it to the summit, estimated at 29,035 feet above sea level. Of course, this is the world's tallest mountain. The air is thin up there. The atmosphere is heady. The temperature ranges between a sunny minus 2 degrees Fahrenheit in summer to a crisp minus 76 degrees, 76 degrees below zero in winter. Perfect vacation spot. (laughs) But don't let these temperatures fool you. This is exacerbated by a wind chill, there are hurricane force winds every three or four days and speeds of 175 miles per hour have been recorded at the summit, which pulls things down to a regular minus 100 degrees Celsius. The lack of oxygen requires that you spend six or seven weeks at a base camp just beneath the so-called death zone, we'll get to that, <laughs> simply to get used to what that lack of oxygen does to your body, sapping your heart your vital organs, and your brain, depriving them of all their strength at exactly the time when you need them most. It is not surprising that many who make it to the summit do not get back alive. And as you make your way up and down, you will notice the almost perfectly preserved bodies of some of the 219 failed climbers. The body of George Mallory bleached perfectly white has been there since 1924. Perfectly preserved, too, may I say, because of the conditions up there. And if you fall or fall ill, the rule of the mountain is fall to the side so that your companions don't have to step over you. 
Helicopters do not do at all well at 29,000 feet. They don't do anything at all. So if you fall or fall ill, you are up there for good. Well, that's your dream and mine of a mountaintop experience. And if you have the $75,000 to do the bargain trip or the $200,000 per person to do it right, you might consider the awesome bragging rights this will give you. What did you do last summer? Well, I went to the top of Mount Everest. Glory. It's all about dreams of glory, breaking through, breaking limits, transcendence. And it's a spiritual experience. Reinhold Messner, the first to make the climb without oxygen, you see, as they go up in greater numbers, they've decided that this is just too easy. So he was the first to climb without an oxygen tanks in 1978, and he remarked, and I quote, in my stage of spiritual abstraction, I no longer belong to myself and to my eyesight. I am nothing more than a single narrow gasping lung floating over the mists and summits. Very poetic. It is about beating sickness, death, and the constraints of our mortality, the laws that bind all existence. It's about shaking your fist, or at least extending your hand, to the distant awesome God who made you and these majestic mountains, and said, you two should get to know one another. And when you're 20-something and immortal, that's an invitation no one can resist. There's a very poignant story, actually, about a pair who were coming down, and they heard the cries of a woman who had fallen. Uh, They went down to her. There was nothing they could do. And she didn't realize her own husband had dropped to his death trying to get to her. But they vowed that they would come back, and eight years later, they'd save the money to come back and at least pile a few stones around her. You're really going to a place where you are literally off the face of the earth. And yes, it is a God experience. And of this God, the majestic God of power and glory, who even resides in these mountains according to legend, Of that God whom we all know, Luther said, This God, therefore, must be left to himself in his own majesty. He must be left to himself in his own majesty. For in this regard, we have nothing to do with him, nor has he willed that we should have anything to do with him. But we do have something to do with him insofar as he has clothed and set forth in his word. For it is this that God, as he has preached, the preached God is concerned with, the God in his word, namely that sin and death should be taken away and we should be saved. But God, hidden in his majesty, the unpreached God, neither deplores nor takes away death, but works life, death, and all in all. For there he has not bound himself by his word, but has kept himself free over all things. Very profound statement from Luther. God is to be found in his word, but do not think that God is contained in his word. God has not bound himself by his word, but he has kept himself above all free over all things. 
what he shares in his word is what he wishes to know us to know of him and this is very important anything beyond that we look for at our own risk so two gods the one preached the one not preached god as god in himself god as he has revealed in his proclamation his word jesus There is the God of our preaching, the God of our proclamation, whose death upon the cross, taking upon himself all the sins of the cosmos, becoming sin, becoming a curse for us, has nevertheless secured our absolution, our forgiveness, severed our connection from eternity from those very sins. This is the God who presents himself to us on earth as the man hanging, bloodied, and broken upon the cross. We want to see the Father. We see him in Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We see him on the cross. There is, however, another God who always pops up in our discourse, the God not preached. This is the God with a capital G who is defined by abstractions as what he is not. Not finite, not changeable, not mortal, not suffering, not limited by time and space, not relative to anything, as Gerhard Ferde says, and as such, God amounts to a deified minus sign. He is certainly not relative to us, not anything like us, and that's the idea, isn't it, of God. He is not like us. Tradition refers to this minus sign God as the God who is absent in his present or absent when he should be present, absent without leave, by our thinking, the deus absconditus. This is the God without limits who haunts us and obsesses us because the minus sign means minus our disabilities. This is the God then of superlatives who is able to do anything And this God appeals to us profoundly. And as Luther says, we spend most of our lives trying to reconcile the God as he is with the God as he has shared himself with us in Scripture. Those superlatives hook us every time. We want to make ourselves like God. The fact that God might have other plans for us, we always have to get to afterwards. Anyway, both gods are there with Peter and the disciples on that mountaintop. The one, Jesus, stands right before him. The other, not preached, is in Peter's head or better, on his back, where the non-preached God is always to be found, driving us on to perform, to do deeds of wonder and glory, miracles and signs. There's a 20-year-old man inside all of us, man or woman, and some of us will never see the end of him. He's fine when you're 20, When you're my age, he's not so fine, but he's there saying, I'm immortal, I can do anything, and I want to break all limits. If you forget that, then get yourself a 20-year-old son. (laughs) Now, the point of all of this today and this episode on the mountaintop is for Jesus to make this one point. There is the God you see in your mind on the peaks of your speculations and in the depths of the chasms of your heart within, and there is the God who stands without, over against you, in the word that this same God brought down to earth for you. We're trying to climb the mountains. God is coming down to earth to meet us in the valleys. 
This is the life that God lived and the death, the death that God died for you and I on our behalf. The majestic mountaintop, the beckoning peaks are not to be trod upon, ascended, scaled, and conquered. This is the word. Mountains are beautiful. Mount Everest sat for 60 million years before anyone tried to set a foot on it. As far as we know, it did just fine at inspiring people. Mountains are to be admired from a distance in awe and fear in dread even. To face that kind of challenge and death for the sake of walking up a mountain is, if you'll pardon me using this word, there is no other word for it, utterly stupid. (laughs) It is sheer stupidity. And yet how it inflames our hearts and minds, and no one more than mine. Their summit is a graveyard for those who have dreams of glory gathering about them, like the gathering clouds of a swiftly forming alpine storm. The sun was revealed in majesty, as our colleague says, before he suffered death upon the cross. Yes, we saw, we beheld, we gazed upon his glory, and it was wonderful. And so we pray, give us grace to perceive his glory. Help us to see the majesty of that mountaintop, Christ in resurrection. What lies ahead? Why? So that by seeing we may believe, faith comes from sight? No. And trusting that what we have seen, we may receive it, be translated up and out of this misery? No. That we may be changed into his likeness from glory to glory? Yes. But no. One thing missing. That we may be strengthened to suffer with him. And then, and only then, be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. That's the difference. That's the one point of this sermon. I'll be done. We want to go straight for the glory. We are told, however, that one thing stands in our way, and that is our only way forward. That is the only way the God not preached has given us to reach him, and that is the God preached and the word preached, the cross, strengthened to suffer with him and be changed. Yes, and as Alan said this morning, most of us don't want to be changed. Thank you very much. (laughs) And not by God. Transformed? Transfigured? No. How? Well, if we're to do it, let's do it our way. Through self-absorption or some kind of infusion of grace, strong enough and long enough to last a lifetime, to give us the strength and stamina to leap to the top of the mountain unhindered. No. God's plan is changed through suffering. Enduring, going into the storms and not always making it through them unscathed. Death and resurrection, that's our model. But being changed, yes, into the likeness of him who too did not come through this unscathed. We can scour the skies for more extreme and exalted ways to encounter God, and we always will but we'll never get him off our back. And we'll never, never get this distant God without getting his wrath smoldering like some volcanic cone. It always comes back to our sins that stand between us and this distant God. 
The only way that the God not preached, the God whose face you cannot see and live, the God who said to Moses, get behind me, hide in the rock, cover your eyes and you can dwell in my shadow and discern my outlines as I pass. The only way to get this God off our case and off our backs is given to us by God, the God who in his word says, follow me, and guides us down the mountain to the muck and the muddle of everyday life, who bids us come, eat, drink, and sit at his table here and in his kingdom. Alan said this morning, a quote from Kierkegaard, it is less terrible to fall on your knees when the mountains tremble. It is less terrible to fall on your knees when the mountains tremble, everybody does that, than to sit at table with him, to accept God's offer of intimacy is more of a challenge to us than climbing the Everest that any majestic God gives us. So if our gospel is veiled, we'll end with Paul, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There are times when we cannot tell, as Luther says, the God of this world from the God who made this world. There are times when we simply cannot tell which one we are dealing with. But we know that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, not even the image of God we might see there at the bottom of that deep, dark abyss. We, claim, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Jesus only. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ, there and only there. Amen.